the things we all carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 84 of The Things We All Carry. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, The greatest hazard of all, losing oneself, can occur very quietly in the world, as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any other loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, etc., is sure to be noticed. In our day-to-day lives, it's very easy to lose ourselves and our sense of self. We are often the last to notice. Alex is a firefighter from a nearby agency, and his story is just that, losing himself to the job. His story is a familiar one, one rot with overtime, an all-in culture, a mindset that tells you no one outside the service understands, the morbidity of humor, even a feeling of being better than anyone else simply because of the work you do. It's that slow transition into defining yourself as a firefighter, not as an individual or a human working as a firefighter. Alex lost a girlfriend, nearly lost an entire set of friends, and more importantly, he lost his sense of self and turned very dark before realizing he had to change. Through therapy, he's been able to make amends and changes. He's found the outlets necessary in order to not keep the experiences and emotions bottled in. He's found the way to enjoy and live life and not simply be about the barbell in a fire truck. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Hit record here, so because I always screw this up. Recording in progress. Awesome. So you ready? Yep. All right. So good morning. Welcome back to the Things We All Carry. This morning I have Alex with me. Alex is a firefighter paramedic from Northern Virginia. Been on the job roughly seven years. I guess you, you'll be eight years in December, correct, Alex? Yeah, yeah eight years. So you got a got a little you know, anniversary coming up. Um, and we talked, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. It's been a while. So we, we yeah. spent about an hour, hour and a half on the phone talking, getting his story and, and getting to know each other. And, and here we are today, just kind of share it with everybody. So good morning, Alex. How are you? Good morning, man. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I always feel like I, I have no canned intro like that. So I kind of do it on the fly and I feel like an idiot sometimes. So uh, I, I, no, I, I beg the audience to bear with me. Um, before we get started, let me, let me ask you what's the last song you heard. Last song I heard. Yeah, I want to know. Okay. Um, it's called, so I like a lot of like, I listen to everything, but I listen to a lot of like EDM stuff. So mm-hmm. it was actually, I was driving home from work this morning. It was called The Good Life by a group called Zoo. Okay. Z-H-U. Z-H-U? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. I'll check yeah, it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. I decided to add that in a little bit because music is a big part of, I. it's a big part of what I do day to day. I just like to listen to music. I like to hang out. I like to have it on in the background, of course, working out. So I just like to get somebody's everybody's opinion on what they listen to and what they're into and, and kind of get a, get a new uh, song or two from my playlist. So thanks. Okay. That's oh. cool, man. I'm actually very into music too. Like I, I go to like a lot of festivals. I went yeah. to, uh, I don't know if you heard of Bonner. Have you heard of Bonner? Oh, of course I've heard of Bonner. Yeah. I went, I went there the first time this past June. Oh, nice. How was it? 
It was incredible. It was incredible. It was probably one of the most formative experiences in my life. I went with a 15 friends and we all like camped out together. We had our cubes kind of linked together. It was, nice. it was definitely good going back next year. So who was the headliner this year? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a few people. It was, I believe it was Kendrick Lamar. He nice. was one of the headliners. Yeah. Paramore. Um, who else? Who was the other one? I can't honestly remember right now. <laughs> I don't know. It just escaped me. It just escaped me. What? I just remember the Kendrick Lamar one. That was a big one for me. It's so yeah. overwhelming because they, there's so much going on at something like that. So Yeah, it is. It's just like, it was five days of just like nonstop music. Um, but it was definitely cool. It was good to like be around like my friends, you know, for that period of time. Most time you hang out with your folks, it's like on a, like a weekend night, something like that. You know, you guys like, hang out, drink a little bit, then you might see each other in a few weeks. But it was like a constant like conversation going on about like life, music, just a bunch of stuff for like five days straight. And yeah, that was good. That's it, was a, it was a good breakaway. I want to go breakaway from work. Next summer, I want to go out to Montana yeah. for Under the Big Sky Festival. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I have, I have heard of that one. Yeah, that's I've heard of that one. That's what I want to do next next summer. It's on the it's on the bucket list, but I think I'm going to check it off next summer. So I was talking to a coworker who went out there this year and he just absolutely loved it. So uh, Bonnaroo, okay. Under the Big Sky, yeah. those are two of the big ones. Yeah. And of course, once we get Austin City back, and they, their lineup has been a little weird for me lately, but I'm hoping that next year they, I, I get something there that I want to go see. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? All right. So I grew up in uh, Montgomery County, like around like Silver Spring, Wheaton, that that area. Um, I spent like most of my like childhood, like my younger years, like you know, one to 10 in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, when my parents split up, then they moved to Silver Spring. I think I spent most of like my formative young adult years in that area. So that's yeah. ironic. I I actually grew up um, from two years old to f- the end of fourth grade in Tacoma Park. So, oh, okay. Yeah. I used to live in Tacoma Park. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I okay. yes. Uh, cool. Was it Sligo Elementary is where I went? Yeah. So I have a lot of friends that went there. Yeah. So there we go. A little. Yeah, well, cool. I'm a few years ahead of you, so we won't don't, we won't yeah. get too excited. But all right. So yeah. so you grew up yeah. in Silver Springs. How was it? It was cool, man. I had a I had a pretty good childhood. I think um, definitely had like a diverse friend because of that. Um, I went to a Catholic school. Not a huge fan of religion, but you know it was what it was, and I still have a lot of friends from that from that era, you know. Um, but I definitely grew up in a diverse, like heavily Latino area. So I got to experience a lot of different foods, a lot of different sites. And I think that was that was pretty good for like my, my upbringing, you know, and that kind of set the standard for what's normal to me in terms of like my interactions with people, you know. Yeah, I had to agree with that because coming from Tacoma Park, I moved to Florida after that. And, and it was weird to me to, to go to a school that, that was predominantly white at that point. Yeah. Was, that was especially coming from Cole Park. Exactly, that was foreign to me, yeah. and it was just it was very it was so odd, and so I think that did form me for for the rest of my life, though of 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 being open and accepting and, and understanding culture and, and and always being curious more than anything. Yeah, so, definitely. Uh, yeah. I, I think so too. It it was there was good there was good and there was bad. I mean, I lived it was it was a it wasn't the greatest neighborhood and and i i paid a price once in a while but it was okay cuz it was it was we all did basically growing up there so all right so elementary school in in silver spring and the catholic school and then was it catholic school all the way to graduation uh yeah yeah i went to um a school called good council um 
it was cool. I mean, it was what it was. Like I said, I, I'm not religious. My parents weren't either. I think they just like sent me because it was a good school, you know. Um, but I, but honestly, school was never really like my like strong point because I never really knew exactly what I wanted to do. You know, some kids like, oh, I don't want to go. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a doctor, X, Y, Z. And like, I never really had that. I never really knew exactly what I wanted to do, you know. But I also think that like, we like send kids to school by age 18. It's like, you need to be making a career path. But like, you know, you can't even drink. It doesn't even make sense to me, right. but you know. No, it doesn't so, make sense. Yeah. But so after, after I got out of high school, I went to college in Tennessee at a school called Fisk, which is an HBCU. And that was, it was a good experience. Um, you know, it was definitely cool being around folks that like looked like me. And that was like kind of the standard. Um, that was interesting. You know, um, I had too much fun, didn't end up finishing. <laughs> but you know, that's, that's part of life, right? Sometimes, you know, things go well, sometimes they don't. So then after that, I moved back up here, lived with my folks for a little bit. And I was like, I got to get a job, right? I got to figure something out. So I, um, started looking for jobs. I started working at a bank. I did that for about four years. And, um, I knew that was something that I, I was never meant to do. You know, I knew that was just not, that was not a permanent thing, right? Like I just never saw myself sitting behind a desk. And even when I was in college, I was a business major. And I honestly, I was like, what am I even going to do with this? Like none of this stuff interests me. There weren't any majors in my school that I thought would really like shout out to me or be something that I wanted to have a career in. So I did that for um, about four years. And actually while I was there, um, I had a client who was a DC firefighter. And at the time I was really getting heavily into working out. And um, I could tell he also worked out and we would talk about it. And he went to a gym that was around the corner from my job. And he was, hey man, like you should come like hang out, work out with me one day, you know? So um, I would go to like the LA fitness that he worked at. Well, he he um worked out at and we'd hang out and he'd talk to me. And one day he was like, man, you ever like Serbian firefighter? At the time I was like, uh, nah, man, like not really. You know, he's like, I think you would probably like, would like it. And so he kind of um started pushing me down that path and telling me things I needed to do to apply. So I, um he suggested I go out and I get my EMTB cert. So I found a class and I did that, um, got my EMTB cert. And then I started applying to jobs from fire departments. I, um, I took DC's first big test, which had like thousands and thousands of applicants. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I didn't get hit on that one. They get picked up. Um, I applied to a few other Nova departments. Uh, my first interview, uh, was with, uh, Arlington. That one went horrible, went terrible because I was not ready for a fire department interview. And I didn't know how the structure of that was going to be. As you know, it's not a typical interview, right? No. You know, they have a set of questions. So they can quantify the answers, you know, and they can actually score people according to how they think they do, you know, which at my time, I, I didn't know that. I just went in there with like my, like my like little portfolio was ready to have like a normal back and forth dialogue. It's right. like, nah, man, we're not doing that. I Answer these that, questions, you have four minutes. As I was gonna say, that's from that business background. Right. Yeah. I was ready to have a conversation. They're like, you have four minutes, answer these questions, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah. So I uh, applied to a few other Nova departments that picked up by one. Um, so yeah, that's how I, that's how I got into it. So when did you join exactly? So seven years, well, eight years in, so 2015? Yep, All 2015. Right. Make sure my math December is right. 2015. Yeah, December 2015 is when I started the academy. Um, so yeah, at that point, I'd been working out a lot. I felt like I was very fit and ready to do the job. And um, I went to the academy. Like I said, I already had EMTB. So like, of course, the first like three months, I think was like just EMTB. I felt pretty good with that. I felt pretty solid with it. You know, uh, went through that, didn't have any issues, got to fire. 
really enjoyed that. Um, that was a completely new skill, you know, like I really didn't know what to expect at that time with it, but, um, I picked that up pretty quickly and my recruit academy was, um, 11 folks. And I think we all, uh, worked very well together. Um, we all like still keep up to this day. Some of us don't work for my department anymore, but we definitely, uh, melded and we all were very, a very cohesive unit. We would hang out outside of, outside the academy, go get drinks. We all became really close friends and we're still really cool to this day. And I've seen it in some of the academies that I've taught, which I'll talk about later, like not all of them are that, are that close, but we were. So yeah, that went pretty well, you know, um, I enjoyed it. So when, when you reached out to me, you said that, that the stories resonate from what you've listened to on the show, correct? Yes, definitely. So definitely. And then other than that, what, what are the reasons for coming on and, and sh wanting to share your story? So, um, one thing I think a lot about is, uh, when I was kind of going through the stuff I was going to, we'll get to, um, I honestly thought I was really just like, it was just me. I was like, something's wrong with me. It has to be me and nobody else feels like this. And, um, as I've come to like, listen to all these stories, like some of them were just so similar that I was like, oh my God, like this is a constant theme. And honestly, like I try to bring more awareness to it, even at my own department. Um, cause, cause as we know, like our departments like say, oh, like mental health is a priority. Mental health is a priority, but it's, it's not really priority. Making sure that you're fit to do the job is priority. Your mental health comes second. If your mental health is affecting whether you can do the job, that's when the issue is. It's not generally like your well-being. It's, it's your fitness to be an asset to the department, which I don't like. You know, I don't think, you know, that's not what we're here for. You know, like I'm here to like take care of my folks and make sure that, you know, people can understand like they're going through something with other people that have been through it. Right. And that it's not abnormal. And the way to fix it is by talking about it and by seeking help, you know, so that's, that's kind of what brought me here today. So you graduate when in 2024, but what month? Oh, uh, it was June, 2016 is when I graduated. 2016. Yeah. Sorry. I, yeah. I don't know why. No, I, wow. Like I said, pardon us, pardon us. We both worked last night, so my brain's a little foggy. Yeah, um, I feel you. What, um, where do you go when you graduate? What's your station like? So, so um, I went to one of the slower stations on the east side, um, which I think was initially a good fit for me. It was a, it was a good crew. Um, like I said, I'd never been in the fire service before. They were very patient with me. You know, I remember I had a, a senior firefighter who I'm still very close with to this day. I run things by her all the time when I have a question and stuff like that. And she's been a pretty like integral point of contact for me in terms of like kind of figuring out where I sit and the things I should be doing at the department. Yeah. We still talk, I talked to her the other day about some stuff, but, um, yeah. So I go there, um, good crew. Like I said, um, going through all my rookie stuff, everything is going, going pretty well, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's how that went. Uh, we ran, we didn't run any, we weren't very, a very busy station still isn't to this day, but I did have like a few significant incidents. Like I remember my first, um, cardiac arrest was I think like two, two weeks after I'd been there. Right. And it was actually, um, it was like, it had to be like a Friday or Saturday night. I think it was a Friday night, probably in like July. Cause I'd probably been out a few weeks. Um, it actually was a, a shooting like around the corner from the station. Right. So. We are literally just right around the corner. So we all get out there. I remember it was, it was a very chaotic scene, which like for a new person, you know, this is like in general is just a lot. Right. So there's like, it was in a lower income kind of housing area that actually most of it's been demolished now. But, um, 
there's folks out there, everyone's screaming. Apparently they're in like some kind of like neighborhood beach and like, I guess somebody had been shot a few weeks before and a few weeks before that, somebody else had been shot and killed. And so this was kind of like another retaliatory shooting. Um, and I vividly remember this because we got there and this is the first time I think I'd ever really seen like a, like a, a dead person, not, not a dead person, but I guess someone dead from a traumatic injury, right. Or in the throes of a cardiac arrest. Right. So we show up, everybody's screaming, uh, one of the medic units had just got there. So we immediately started doing CPR on, on this, on this guy. Um, I remember doing, I was first person on the chest. So I'm doing CPR. Mind you, this is, I think it's the first time I've ever done CPR. Mm-hmm. And the police aren't really doing a great job of controlling the scene. I could tell even like the battalion chief who I think was there or, or yeah, it was the battalion chief. He's trying to like kind of get us off the scene because it was going all over the place. Um, so I remember as I'm doing CPR, the guy's sister comes out and sees him and like knocks him, knocks me off of him, right? And she starts trying to grab him and stuff like that, knocks me down. Uh, but yeah, it was just, it was a lot for a new person to take in, but it was weird because at the same time I was like, wow, like, we're actually out here like doing things that are important. And it almost made me like double down into it. I was like, this is not, not that like the situation is good, but like, it's great that I can actually be out here and make a difference and do these things. You know, they're going to help people to some degree. So, yeah. So you spend how long at that station? I was at that station for probably about a year. Okay. Um, a year flat. And then at the end of my kind of tenure there, like they put out a um, notification about going to like medic school and, I kind of saw the direction the department was going in, which is like, you know, like more ALS providers, more EMS heavy. So I figured, you know, I might as well just, I might as well apply and see if I get in. I was still probationary. So I honestly didn't think that they would pick me, you know, but at that point, I think they were just kind of looking for a lot of people. So I applied, I got in and I got my black shield like the first day of medic school. So I started doing that. And um, it was very fast paced medic school. Uh, it was only four and a half months. Uh, but it was five days a week and then you did your clinicals on the weekend. So it was pretty much like six days a week, bare minimum that you were doing things, you know, uh, that's how we got through it. So, so fast, but I did well with that, uh, got through it, passed everything, passed the national registry medic, which is, you know, as you've probably seen, that's, it's stressful, man. You know, like you're going through all this stuff, you know, and like, you just feel like your job is on the line, even though it's not, but it's just, it's just a lot of pressure, you know, which, um, it was good. And I, I did well with it, like I said. So after that, after I got back out, I went to a station that was also on the east side, but a little bit busier. Um, yeah, that one, that station actually is where I did my internship and I got a lot of experience there. Um, it has a, it's a very diverse too, right? Cause there's like a, a bar area where you can go out, there's a jail, there's a detox center, the highways right up the road. So you're pretty much getting a little bit of, of everything from there. And I did get a little bit of everything. There's a nursing home in that first dude. So you're running cardiac arrest there all the time. They have a vent floor there. So you're going down there and deal with trachs, stuff like that. You're dealing with drug overdoses, also shooting, stabbing. So there is that, that still lower income area around there as well. So pretty much, like I said, you get a, get a little bit of everything. And I know that you, you had, um, you mentioned, I think you saw your first burn body there. Yeah. Um, so it was actually, uh, that was weird. Wow. It was a structure fire. I remember it was actually right around the corner of Flume, the first cardiac arrest that I, I had, the one I talked about. Um, essentially, when I was a structure fire, the engine pulls out. We're following them. We're kind of scanning the area. It's kind of reconning because I see fire, but you can smell the smoke and you can kind of see the haze. So we're all like looking around. Um, 
eventually we realized that it wasn't a structure fire. There was a guy who had set himself on fire smoking PCP and was running down the street. And he had fallen into somebody's backyard and had completely just gone up in flames. So by the time we got there, he was completely, completely just like immolated. Fire had already burnt itself out. You know, I just remember seeing this guy because his, his hair, he had like dreadlocks and they were like cracking off. You know, that's how burnt up he was, you know. So that was, that was kind of the first time I'd ever seen something like that, you know. But at that point, I think I was so like doubled down into this kind of stuff that I wanted to see these things, which is like, no, it's a, it's a weird vibe, right? Like, yeah. And I see that a lot, especially in new people. Like they, they want to get in there. They want to see it. They want to they like, I guess, like experience the tactileness of, of that, of seeing a dead body and all these things, right? You know, just because it's, it's new, you know what I mean? It's almost like playing a video game to them at this point, I think, you know? And I, I definitely fell into that and I was like, yo, man, this is crazy. Like, yo, I want to see it, blah, blah, blah. You know, I even made a joke about it after I was like, uh, I was talking to like one of my friends. I was like, oh, I guess we're having barbecue later, you know? And like, everyone thinks it's funny. And now looking back at it, it's like, it's like, damn, I can't even believe I was like thinking like that, you know? But I was so like bought in to like, I guess, like experiencing these things because I wanted to, I don't know. I just wanted to, to I guess, have that encyclopedia of things I had seen and done, you know? And, and that had helped, that had bought me into it. So yeah, after that, I, uh, to finish my internship at the station. Let, let me interrupt you one second. Um, yeah. What day? I know the department you work for, and I know that it's, yeah. it, I know the area. And so I'm just curious, like at that point where you see that body or you, or you do the, your, your first CPR from the, from the gang shooting, what resources are made available to you? Or, or at this point, are they, are they making resources available to you? Yeah. So they have, um, uh, uh, SISM. You know, critical incident stress management stuff. And they have like a team of folks. So typically like when we have a, a more like stressful incident, um, we'll all go back to the station, excuse me. And, uh, someone from the team and it's typically another firefighter will call the station and they'll be like, Hey, uh, I know you guys just read this call. How's everybody doing? Is everybody good? And like, honestly, like, I hate that. I can't stand it because like, honestly, do you really think anybody could be like, I'm not good. No one's going to do that, right? Like, that's not the, in my opinion, that's not the environment to have that. I think I've only known one other person that's been like, yeah, no, I'm not good. But like, no new person is going to say they're not good. You know, really no one, no one I know is going to be like, no, I'm not good. I got to go home. I got to talk to somebody. No one's going to admit to that. They're a room full of people. You know what I mean? Especially firefighters. Like, that's not, a, that's not about to happen. I mean, I, I'll be... I'll be brutally honest with you. I got a text message from, well, it was a group message from, from a couple of my friends in the department. And they were talking about, hey, you know, if anybody needs to talk, we're always there. And and the four of us talk all the time, but we never really talk necessarily. You know, does that make sense? Like, like I, I preach talking, but I don't always reach out when I need to talk. And so it's something even I have to remind myself. So it's, it, you're right. And then that group setting, it does, it just doesn't happen. The pressure is there. The spotlight gets on you and, and. And people don't know how to handle it when you do speak up. Exactly. And the thing is, it's like, like I said, especially new folks who might be the most affected people by this. You know what I mean? They're, they're still so bought into this system where they have to be this person and this idea. They think this tough person, you know, and of course, like talk about like how you're feeling about something or how it affects you. Traditionally in the fire service, it's not tough. You're just supposed to just like deal with it, you know? And one thing I always preach to like, especially the newer guys is like, yeah, like we, I, I like to, I like to think that we are like a, a tougher brand of people, but the reason that we are or should be is because, you know, we discuss these things and when we go through something, we deal with it in a proper way so we can continue to be resilient. You know, if you have all these things happen to you and you don't deal with them in a proper way, they're going to start to creep out in ways that aren't appropriate. 
right? But, you know, that's, that's, a, that's what I like to preach to people. And, you know, that's what's benefited me is like, you know, like the ability to be resilient is from you dealing with your stressors in a proper way. And when you do them in a proper way, they don't leak out into other parts of your life in inappropriate ways, you know? And now that's, that's, that's an education you earned over the years, you know, over yes. the, over yeah. the last few years. And, and that's not something you came to the job with. And so let's talk about where you go after this, after the, uh, after you get your medic and you go through your internship, you, I know you move to a busier part of the city, but if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, I actually ended up going to a, a very slow station for about three or four months, kind of like a, as an intermission. And then after that, I went to the station I spent most of my career at, which is on the West side. Um, and that station is definitely, definitely more busy. Um, there's definitely some uh, more acute incidents over there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of lower, lower, there's high frequency, low acuteness events over there a lot, but there's also a lot of like high acuity events. Um, so yeah, I went to, went to the station on the West side. Um, I was underneath a captain who'd been here for 30 years and the driver had been here for about 30 years as well. Um, at that point we were still riding three on the engine. So I went over there as the fire medic, which they didn't have before. Now they were going to make it an ALS engine. So I went over there as that person. Um, and that was definitely a different experience than I had, uh, experienced so far in the fire service. It was a way more traditional station. There is definitely a lot of pride there. And I really, really liked that. Um, I really fell in with those, those guys very well. I was in the engine. One of the guys I went to recruit school with was on the truck. So that was kind of cool to kind of be reunited with him, you know? Um, so we were, we both worked there for, he still works there. Um, I've gone to another station since then, but I'll get to that. Um, but I think I, in total, I was there for about three and a half, almost four years. And definitely, I think the, the, I've ran the most significant incidents since I was there. Um, yeah. So that was. That was a great experience for me. I picked up a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge. Um, like I said, I ran probably the most significant. That's where I first saw like fires, like actual fires was first due to some. Um, we ran more structured fires over there. Like I said, we weren't always first due, but I was first due to a lot more over in that area. Um, ran a lot of, a lot of significant EMS calls because it's such a high volume of people. There's a lot of high rises over there. Just because of that, like you're just running calls, you know, like an average day for us would be maybe like between 18 to 22 calls in that 24 hour block, you know? And at that point I was, um, that's what I wanted, you know, and I, I still enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, that was like, what I was craving was like that call volume, that acuity that you see it over there on the West side. Um, at that point I had really gotten into, well, I still really am into like fitness and CrossFit. And so pretty much all I was doing at that period was working, working out, working and working out. That was pretty much just, just my life. And I really enjoyed that, uh, that kind of dichotomy that I was in at the time. But, um, it, the problem was like, I was running all these events. I was rarely sleeping. I would come home. Um, I like coffee as you can see, I'm drinking coffee right now. Uh, so I'd come home. I pretty much would just like chug coffee and I'd be at the gym for like maybe like four or five hours. And then I would come home, sleep, go back. I would get to work early, work out, run calls, train, go downstairs and work out again. And I was just doing this cycle for, for years. And I realized that was kind of when I started to realize that like, Hey, I had I kind of garnered an addiction to the lifestyle of like, kind of always feeling a high, whether that high was through, you know, like running calls at work and I mean, or just doing like 
extreme CrossFit. Like I, and I, I was starting to realize that I needed that kind of, that sensation of the extreme in order to feel anything. And that first started when I was over there. And um, it definitely began to cause issues in like my personal life. I kind of forsook my, my personal life completely at that point. You know, I was, um, I have friends, of course, uh, I still do, but I, I was starting to have like difficulty, I guess, kind of resonating with them. My therapist calls it disassociating because like I would be hanging out with people and I would feel like because I wasn't doing something extreme or to the extreme nature that I just wasn't activated. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like, I wasn't. Yeah. I think that's a common thing. You know, that's, that's that chaos that we talk about quite often on the show. Mm -hmm. So I would oftentimes feel like, yeah, I'm hanging out with these folks, but I would feel like I I didn't understand like the things that you're talking about, you know what I mean? Or like, I would in my head know that they like didn't understand where I was coming from or, you know, like, I think I said this the last time we spoke, but like a lot of times, like, and it's, it's bad to look at it now, but looking back at that time period, I kind of looked at them as like, I looked at these people as weaker, right? Like I, I looked at them as almost like sheep. Right. Like they have no idea what's going on out there where they're out here, like having a blast, like throwing their hands in the air, but like, they, they don't know what's really happening out there, you know? And I, that was kind of like my mentality at the time. And it was definitely starting to like take hold of my life in a negative way. And like I said, I was so just addicted to like, having that sensation of just the intensity that anything else was pretty much just made me feel numb, you know? So that's kind of, that, that was kind of where I, I got into it. Um, I think probably like one of my most significant calls I ran over there, I actually had, I don't know if I told you this one, but I had like a bilateral amputation mm-hmm. over there. Oh yeah. This one was, um, it was pretty wild. I was actually in the gym working out and, uh, while I was a pedestrian strup, um, Literally in a uh, safe way around the corner of my station. And, you know, it's a guy, like, I, I know the address and I'm looking at it and like, it's in a safe way parking lot. Like somebody probably got bumped and they're just like, I got my neck. You know what I mean? So like, all right. So on the way up there, updates, call updates. And it says patients missing both of their legs. Right. That's a hell of an update. And so, right. I was like, <laughs> so I look a hell of an update. Was, Right. And so I look over the other guy in the back because I, I was riding inside and I, I look over and I'm like, I'm like, look at the notes. And I'm like, you see this? And he's like, yeah. So as we pull in the parking lot, sure as shit, I can like see the pools of blood. So I'm like, all right, man. I, I looked at the guy to my right. I'm like, yeah, let's just grab these tourniquets and get them on the second we get out here. So we pull in the parking lot and sure as shit, the guy is laying there, right? Uh, both his legs are off. One is still kind of hanging on by a thread. And so I have one tourniquet, uh, the other guy on like the, the right bucket, he is, uh, he is the other tourniquet. So we both just grab both of his legs, slide them on there and just start cinching them down. And, um, yeah, guys like screaming, of course, because as you know, it's not comfortable, but stop the bleed there. Kind of on a backboard, um, got both legs, put them in a patient belongings bag, get them on the unit. Um, the two medics that were on the medic unit, they start doing their thing. Uh, one of them starts to line and start giving him some pain management. Um, like I'm, the guy is still alert and oriented times four. Uh, he's still with it. So I'm kind of at this point, I'm trying to like kind of talk to him and take his mind off of what's going on. Cause at this point he's screaming and he's asking about like his legs, you know, and I'm just trying to refocus him on like, at least some of the positive, right? I'm like, Hey man, like we're going to get you to the hospital. We're doing the best job we can, you know? Um, at this point he's like really freaking out. So I ask him, like, Hey, 
tell me about your wife. Cause I saw he was wearing a wedding ring. So I was like, tell me about your wife. So I started telling about his wife, you know, and he tells me the entire story, how they met, all that kind of stuff until he finally goes out from the ketamine. Um, but so we get him up to GW, which is our transport center for like major incidents. Um, they ended up saving that guy's life. So, but yeah, we uh, actually ended up meeting him um, a few months later. Um, he wanted to meet all of us and that was a pretty significant thing for me to actually for once see the the positive outcome of what we what we do you know because at that time i was kind of becoming very very jaded with a lot because like we we're just dealing with like a lot of bs you know and like on that side on that side of the city you really see like the depravity of like society you know what i mean like you see like the worst things in people like the worst like violent episodes you see just like the the disparity you see like the poor conditions people are living in like i can't tell you how many times i like go into like uh, a low-income high-rise and I see like an 80-year-old die with nothing in the house except the chair yeah. or like a uh, an air mattress. And it's funny because like I realize things like that would affect me more than, you know, like seeing somebody shot, stabbed, or killed. Like just seeing somebody die with nothing is just like, it, it's just, it speaks to just where we are. And that was one of the worst things for me to see was people that just like have nothing and then die with nothing, you know? But anyways, I mean, I may get back on track, but, uh, yeah, so we actually ended up saving that guy's life. And uh, I think that story is significant cool. because we don't always get those yeah. outcomes. We I'm not the not the we outcome of, of of living, but we don't always get to hear the outcomes. Yeah, no, yeah. we don't. And it was it was pretty cool because he actually went to like the I guess GW. They have a, a trauma survivors network, and they have like a, a um a ceremony every year. Hmm. He was like one of like the keynote speakers, so he got to speak at it. And um, at the time, I was teaching the academy, so I couldn't go. But um, one of my friends, one of the medics who was on the medic unit, she recorded it, and he even said to me, he specifically was saying to me, he was like, "Thank you for not letting me die," because also at the time when we first got there, he just was screaming, "Let me die!" And I was like, oh, "I can't do that." Yeah, he's <laughs> sorry. But yeah, yeah. but um, not, and he was telling not me, my scope like, of practice. Yeah, I'm not allowed to do that, sir. I'm kind of sorry, but yeah, that's not what we're here to do. But um, he personally thanked me for doing that. And it was crazy. I actually have a picture of him. I know we're on video. I can show no, you. Did, yeah. Yeah, I actually have a picture of me and him right there. That's awesome. On mantle. Yeah. Yeah. So that was um, that was pretty. That was pretty significant. We're actually friends on Facebook now, so I can kind of watch his recovery. And, um, it's, it's pretty cool to see. Cause like a lot of times, like I look at that picture when I feel like I'm like, none of this shit matters. And I remember that it always does matter. And that's one thing I try to teach to my recruits when I taught the academy is like all these things that we do, they really matter and they have consequences for people every day. Sometimes you know, the smallest like, things matter. And that's the, that's the part we do. miss. Exactly. You know, like even like just like being nice to somebody on a call, like that might've, that might've really mattered. That might've been the thing that stopped them from doing something significant, you know? Could be so, the only time that someone was nice to them. I mean, especially if you're dealing with someone that's homeless and you know, exactly. you're running a homeless, you know, it's, it's, you're running the drunk guy for the third time that, that, that shift and you just exhibit patience and talk to him like a human being. That's probably the only contact he gets as, as a human being. Exactly. And then that's what I try to preach. But, um, yeah, man. So I ran a lot of significant incidents like that. You know, it was kind of just a nonstop, no sleep, working out hard, running calls all day type thing. And I was, I was so invested in it that like, I, I, like I didn't notice the time, but my personal life was like completely falling apart. Um, I, 
was pretty much just a machine. You know, like I said, I didn't really have any emotions outside of the extremes, right? I was, I was either working out to extreme intensity, I was angry about something, or I felt nothing. Those were like my three emotions was right. like working out, angry, or nothing, you know? And like, I think people, even at my job, kind of begin to know me as like, oh, like, you know, Alex is a temper, Alex is a temper, you know what I mean? And that was just because I was so stressed out by everything and I didn't really even see it. Right. You know, and I thought that was a standard because, you know, you know, in the fire service, like we're all very like, we're, we're always making a joke, you know, we're all assholes, you know, the, that type of thing. And I thought that was like normal behavior at the time, especially with like the folks I was working with, because they're all exhausted too. Mm -hmm. They're all tired too. So we all kind of like bounce that energy off of each other. And like that becomes the norm, yeah. you know? And then you, you only resonate with those people, you know what I mean? Because they've been through the things that you've been through, of course. So you, you really think that how you're behaving and how they're behaving is how humans should behave all the time, which of course, as we know, isn't true. But um, yeah, so I was at that station for four years. I read a lot of stuff, but I think like the, the one that like I realized, I was like, this is something's wrong, was um, actually, ugh, I'd already put in to go down to the academy and I got accepted. So I was going to go do that in a few weeks at the time. And we, um, excuse me, we were getting, we were getting off. It was probably 530 in the morning when this call went out and it went out as a uh, cardiac arrest for a 70 year old. Right. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, DOA probably died in sleep, whatever, you know, and that of course to take away from like anybody's life, but you know, at certain ages, things, you start to expect things, right? Like you expect a 70 year old to be dead. You expect an 80 year old to be dead. You know, that's part of like cycle of life, right? That just is what it is, you know? But so as we're going to this call, it updates and it's actually a seven month old, right? Mm. So, you know, like if you get dispatched for that, you can, you, if you know it from jump, you can kind of sort of get your mind in the spot exactly. that needs to deal with something like that. But like we got the note updated, like as we were pulling into the parking lot, right? So now everybody's like, oh shit, seven month old. So I vividly remember this, like getting up there. And this is also my first pediatric cardiac arrest. At this point, I've been there for like five and a half, six years. And I'd never ran a pediatric cardiac arrest. I ran plenty of normal cardiac arrest, plenty of adult, you know, of all types. So I was pretty familiar with that. But we get up there and the one thing I will never forget, I will never forget is the sound of a grown adult man screaming when they find out their child is dead. It is a scream that I will never forget. And it still, to this day, this call, I still hear that scream all the time, unfortunately. Like, you know, it's something that just like sticks with me. So we get in there. Apparently this kid uh, was asleep in, in a bed with his little brother, with his big brother. He was only seven months old and he had rolled between the wall and the actual mattress and had suffocated. So by the time we got there, um, this kid was already blue. He, he had been dead for probably a few hours. There was nothing really we could do. However, just because of course it's a child, we're going to, we're going to like go through all of our protocols anyway. So we start coding this kid, do his, doing CPR on him. Now it's the first time I've ever done CPR on an infant. So that was, uh, you know, it was definitely something that I, I vividly remember. And I guess at that time it was the last day of our tour, you know? So each one of these tours, especially that station feels like you're like, you know, going through it. So by the end of the tour, it's 5.30 in the morning. You're just like basically on autopilot. But that one, I felt like I was not. I I vividly remember, like I said, doing secret on this kid. And it was just like, what are we doing? Like, how did we even fucking get it? You know what I mean? Like, like how, like what is happening? So code this kid, tube him, and we came up to the hospital. And of course, there's nothing they can do. This child's already, already dead. So yeah, 
we get back to the, the station after that. I get relieved. And so I get my car to go home and I'm just like, I don't know. At that point, I realized my cup was just full. Like it was just like everything I had done had just been like hitting me over the past few years. Like it had never really bothered me that much. All the other things that I'd done, but like this was just like that one straw, that one like little needle. You know what I mean? And I just, I had just started bawling in tears all the way home. And if you know me, you know, that's like not a normal reaction for me. And like, that was when I realized like I am full, you know what I mean? And if I don't do something, you know, it's, it's going to be an issue, but I still, unfortunately, uh, kind of ignored it. And I was like, you know, maybe it's just this one call or a pH cardiac arrest, you know, but at that point, that was when my emotions kind of became even more extreme. Right. So I already put him to go to the academy and I was, wasn't going for like another like month and a half, but like, I'll go back to work next door. Everything's fine. Still doing the same thing. Um, but I started to notice, I said to notice that my emotions were just becoming more and more extreme. Right. So I think it's maybe a few weeks later, I got like held over, which like at, at my department is pretty, pretty standard. You're getting held over like all the time. You know, it pretty much goes through seasons of who's getting held over. Like right now it's our officers. Our officers are getting held over like every day. At that time it was the fire medics. We were all getting held over at least like once a tour. Right. And, um, I uh, got held over, which normally doesn't phase me. I'm like, whatever, man, it's extra money. But this particular day, I don't know why, but it, it just like pissed me the fuck off. You know, like, I don't know exactly what it was, but. I got home after that and I was so livid. I was angrier than I had ever been, you know? And I just, I got home and I just sat down and I just, I was so full of like fury and I couldn't place it. And that was what made me like, it, it just, it just ruminated. It, it was like, there's no one, nowhere for me to like take this anger. There was nowhere for me to put it. There wasn't like a, a face for me to put it on. There wasn't like a person I could punch. There wasn't anything I could, I could personally, you know, assign the blame to because it's just a systematic issue right but it's like i felt like my time had been taken for the last time and i was so angry that i was like you know what man like like i could just this could be it i could just end it right now you know and of course like thankfully like i talked myself out of that and i was like that's crazy but that's how angry i was over something as small as being held over and of course like being held over takes your time you know but like the the reaction wasn't appropriate for the stimulus right you know what i mean but in my mind it was just I was just so full of this fury about it that like, I just came in here and I just like sat down I just sat there with my hand in my head and I was just like, I'm so sick of this place. I just can't, I cannot do this anymore, you know? But um, I got through that and then I went to the, and I, I kept telling myself, I was like, on the academy, you're gonna be fine. Like just go down there, you know, like you'll get some time off. You'll get some time to kind of like reinvest in the program because you're gonna get to like work with new people who've ever done this and that'll be great. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. So I, I went down there and it was great. You know, I got to, like I said, I got to work with new people and um, who had never been in the fire department. And it was great to see like their dedication and their interest in like becoming firefighters. And it's remind, it reminds you of why, why you do it. You know what I mean? To see like how invested they are, like the bright eyed bushy tailness of them. And, you know, 
but it also kind of made me sad sometimes because it was like, you know, like they're so invested in it and you kind of know what's going to happen to them after a while. Right. Yeah. You know, and hopefully you can give them the tools mentally to deal with it. But it's like, I just didn't want any of them to go through something like that. I didn't want them to feel like that. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. You look at them yeah. and you, and you realize what the road ahead of them, what's how it's paved basically. Yeah. And, and yeah. yeah, if you could just take, take what you've experienced, you know, that first, like you said, that first CPR, that first infant pediatric CPR, the first, the bilateral amputation, this is what I did. This is how I felt. This is how I reacted and kind of make them hope that they can empathically understand it. It would make a difference or you think it would make a difference. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I um, went down to the academy. I was there for a year and teaching was great. I definitely learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about teaching folks. You know, it kind of set me up for the next stage of like where I wanted to go in the department. It helped me out a lot. Um, and like I said, it was, it was a good escape for a little bit, but also it, it's really not a break that you think it is. And of course, once you do it, you realize that because you're actually there, you're actually at work even more, right? Because you get down there five thirty in the morning, you know, you're planning everything, you're doing everything. And then you leave at like 6.30, 7, depending on like how the days are going, right? And then on top of that, you want to work overtime, right? So you're working nights. So you, you're actually working even more hours, right? And um, I also became very, very much mission focused at that time. Like I even more disregarded anything in my personal life because my one goal was to like do the best that I could do for these people to make sure that they're prepared to go out here and experience the things they're going to experience, right? So like anything else to that came second. Everything else to that came second, right? At the time I was dating somebody, uh, that came second. My friends, family, they, they became second. Everything came second because my primary mission is making sure that these people are fit to go out and do the best they can for the citizens, right? You know, and unfortunately, I think I have, at that point, I had just become un, unawarely, I guess I would say just like, I had this very much a martyr mentality, which I think is another thing in the fire service, which is like, you know, we, we push. So it's like, oh, like how much overtime are you working? I've worked 65 hours in two days. You know what I mean? It's right. It's like, you know, and it's like that mentality, you know, of course, like there is like an aspect of martyrdom in the fire service. That's kind of like a, a tenant of it is like me sacrificing something for somebody else. Right. And I think there is beauty in that, you know, like sacrificing something for something greater, you know, but when you're just doing it just to do it, just to say it doesn't make any sense. Right. You know, like we always say like, you know, Risk a lot to save a lot, risk a little to save a little, right? You know, like things like that are important. But like, if you're just like suffering for the sheer sake of suffering, like that makes no sense. Right. Right. So, and at that point, I think that's kind of what I was doing because I had just become that person. I was very much like, I'm going to like sacrifice everything I can. I'm going to do the best I can for these people. And unfortunately, like I said, I was just letting my life kind of fall to the side. Um, my mentality in terms of how I looked at like people outside of work had even had declined even more drastically. Like I said earlier, I was pretty much just seeing anyone who didn't do what we do or anyone who wasn't in our field pretty much is just like cheap. You know what I mean? They're just like going to the world in this like oblivious state, which of course isn't true, you know, but at this point I, I was so like double down that, you know, humanity is shit. Like, honestly, I think I just seen so much at this point that like I had pretty much just like lost all faith in like the positives of, of humanity which sucks, you know, because I definitely have changed that since then. But at the time I was pretty much like 
humanity is evil. Like there's, there's, there's really no point in anything. I had a very like nihilistic like approach, right. To everything. Um, but my life outside of it was falling apart. I was, uh, my girlfriend with me lived with me at the time. And honestly, I was just like, I was cold to her. Like I was not fair like to her at all. And, um, it definitely showed, uh, but it kind of came to a head after we broke up, we broke up and I actually was the one who initiated it. And I, and honestly, I think I just was just so out to, out to like, out to lunch in terms of everything else except work, you know, like, but if, if you would see me at work, you'd be like, oh, this, he's doing fine. You know what I mean? Cause that was the only area that I felt like I could perform in, you know, outside of that, everything was just negligible. So he broke up, um, but it really didn't come to a head where I realized that I have got to do something until a few months later. Um, I was actually hanging out with some of my friends at a bar. And it was some guys I hadn't seen in a while. Um, we all went to the same gym. And so I was, um, was catching up with them. You know, we're all, of course, we're drinking and stuff like that. And uh, one of me and one of my good friends actually got into a like small argument about something. I think it was in terms of like, because he's a father in terms of him, like talking about his children. And I think I said something like, yeah, like being a parent must like has a lot, of, a lot of downsides, man. I think I said something like that, but we've been drinking and it just erupted from there. And it just went to a place that normally like I would never take it, but I got so angry at him because he said to me, I really remember he said, the only thing you're good at is throwing around a barbell and riding a fire engine. And I guess for me, when he said that it reduced me to those things. And I mean, it reduced me to simply, that's all, that's all I am. And it, it made me feel small. Yeah. And I, I, I lost it. Like if my friends had not grabbed me and almost held me down, I would have killed him. Like I would have beat him with an edge of his life. No question. No question asked. Like if they had not physically stopped me or stepped in between us and like literally held me back, I was going to beat him within an inch of his life. Like just with, with, with no, with no regard, you know? And that was when I realized and so they separated us and they like took both of us and like split into two groups and we both all went home. Right. And that was when I realized that like this has reached a point where I have got to do something because I'm, my emotions are extreme and this is just not the person that I knew myself to be. And I felt like I was almost watching like a roller coaster. Like I was on a roller coaster that I couldn't control anymore. You know and I mean, I, I just couldn't, it was almost like I was watching myself do these things and I had no control over them. You know, and that was the, the time when I was like, okay, I have to do something. I talked to one of my other friends a few days later after that. And he literally told me, he's like, Alex, you're scaring us. You're really scaring us. Like your behavior over the past few months has been so extreme and we don't know what's wrong. And you won't tell us like why you're acting like this or what's happening, you know? And at this point, like, I didn't even know what to say to him. Like, I, I didn't even know how to explain how I felt because I honestly thought that they, they wouldn't understand. I was like, they won't understand the things I've seen, things that I've done and how they're affecting me. So I just need to sit on it, you know, and I couldn't go to work and talk to anybody about it there. Cause I felt like they would understand it, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't respect me after that. You know what I mean? And that was kind of, you know, where it lied. And I knew I was kind of at a crossroads where it was like, Alex, you have to like, if you don't handle this, this is going to end even more poorly. Right. And it's probably going to end a whole other way that we don't even want to get to. Right. So like, if you want to take control of your life, you really have got to do something. And so I did, um, I reached out and I found a therapist. I finally started like talking to him 
and it definitely changed my perspective on a lot of things, right? Um, I definitely started talking a lot more about what was going on with my life and like how I was feeling, you know, and it, it definitely, it definitely helped, you know, and one thing he said to me, which kind of still resonates was like, I was very big and like, like my friends and my family aren't going to understand, right? They're just not going to understand. They're not going to see where I'm coming from. And he was like, have you even tried to explain to them or like let them know how you feel? And I was like, no. He's like, why don't you just start trying to do that? He's like, they may not understand the tactile sensations of you doing these things, but they can definitely empathize with you because they care about you. You know what I mean? And so after that, I started doing that. Like I literally like pretty much wrote a letter to one of my friends kind of explaining where I was, you know? And um, they definitely, they definitely understood it. And that kind of like, like was the first crack, you know, to like kind of like unstone me, I guess. I don't know what else I would say, you know? And I started doing that and I started explaining to them how I felt about things. And it almost made, and it made me feel like a human again, which I had not felt like in a long time. I felt like I was literally just like a machine. And doing that and talking about it definitely kind of gave, made me feel like a human again, which was great. Um, my therapist started suggesting that I write things down and I still do that to this day. Um, when I feel like some kind of extreme emotion, I, I, I like go to my book that I have and I write stuff down and like, honestly, like putting that pen to paper, man, like it, it, and, and kind of, you know, sort it and organize it onto paper for me does a lot. It, it does a lot. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it had just gotten to a point where it was just, it was just so extreme that. I knew if I didn't do something, you know, this, this could only end one way, you know, and, um, you know, it just, I guess I was just used, I was not used to the lack of control of that situation. Right. I, um, I was very much used to like being the person at work who like, oh, like Alex shows up. Oh, we got this. You know what I mean? Like, all right, cool. Like, oh, he's coming. Like, good. You know, like the guy who's like always like ice cold, was squared away. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, like I, I always had it under control, you know, and, and I felt like the first time in my life that I did not have it under control. And I don't know if you've experienced that, but like when you realize that you don't have that, it's not under control. It's a scary feeling for somebody who likes to control things. It was terrifying. Like to like basically just watch myself, like act crazy and feel like I just like couldn't control it. It was just, it, it was enough to like break me and it, really humbled me for the first time in a long time. It made me be like, damn, man, like you are a human being and you've got to deal with these issues or you won't be able to continue to do what you do for a living if you don't, if you don't deal with this, right? Because we're, we're seven years into this at this time, you know, and still got a long way to go. And this is what's going on and it's happening because you're not taking care of yourself, right? So, let yeah, me, man. Let me ask you a question about that day one you walk into the therapist's office. You've never done anything like yeah. this before, correct? Yeah, I hadn't. So what was it like? And, and and I think this is a question I get sometimes from from listeners who haven't been to therapy themselves. What was it like for you? What what were what were the feelings walking in there and, and how did you allow yourself to let go? Um, I don't know, man. I was pretty anxious about it, which I guess is pretty standard. Because oh, yeah. I, mean, I don't know what to expect. Like, you know, like also it's like there's so many things I was kind of skeptical because I was like, how is this person gonna, of course, like, I guess deal with everything I'm giving them in this hour block. Of course, it's not going to be just that hour. You have to come back. That's the whole purpose. You know what I mean? You have to like continue to unpack these things. But I guess like I was really anxious about it and I kind of doubted it. I was like, this, this is like not going to work. 
again. Like I kind of felt like I was already too far gone, to be honest with you. <laughs> I was like too, too far, far gone, gone in the sense that he he just couldn't do anything. Like like you're just yeah. going to give this a ride, but but wh- why? Is that what you were thinking? Yeah, exactly. I was like, uh, I don't even know how how this is going to work, and it's it's crazy because like it did work, and honestly, like that's why I still go back. But um, even and this is another thing, even like going and talking about it. So I, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but like so my uh, my mom is actually she was a uh, a nurse at MedStar Wash Health Center for 40 years. Okay. Right. So she, uh, through like the crack epidemic, through all these crazy things, right. She's an L&D nurse up there, which is still like pretty, pretty rough. You know, it's not like you're out like somewhere in like Southern Virginia, like they, they, they mm-hmm. were pretty busy up there. And so finally, when I started talking about this stuff, like I've, I, I, the house I grew up in, like my mom was pretty much like the, she was a disciplinary she's the rock. She was the person who kind of was like the, the, uh, last line you know what i mean she was like the d woman you know so i never saw her falter i never saw her you know show any signs of weakness ever like my entire life so i finally like i don't know when i started going to therapy and stuff i i talked to her about it and i brought up to her and she was like oh yeah i used to go to therapy all the time when i was new and it shocked me yeah i was like what you know wait a second she's like yeah exactly and she honestly kind of told me a similar story about like how i was she even told me that her friends pulled her aside and we're like, yeah, Jerry, like you're not, something's going on with you. Like you're dealing with a lot and it seems like you're not yourself. And that was what prompted her to go. So I was like, no shit. You know? And it's like the people that you never expect, you know what I mean? And that's, and that's why, like I said, I'm kind of here, honestly, man, just kind of try to like normalize it because I know for a fact that everybody, everybody experiences this stuff and they experience it in their own way. But just to at least let people know that it's normal and that you can do something about it. You know, I think it's just, it's just really important. So when did you start therapy exactly? Was it last year? Yeah, it was about like last year, probably, what is it now, September? I would say probably like end of July, I think was probably when I started to talk to somebody. So you, you, you obviously get an initial, I don't know, I, I'll speak from my own, my own point of view. I know when I first spoke to somebody, I got this initial, whoo, God damn, that's good to get that off my chest. Hell yeah. Like that was exactly how I felt. You know what I mean? I was like, you literally feel like you're like taking off your, your gear, right? Like yeah. after you've like done like a drill or you've been like on a stretch fire for a few hours and you like take off your jacket and you, you get that step feeling really, yeah. that's exactly how I felt. You yeah. know what I mean? I was like, I was tired of carrying it. And like, not to like put out the name of the show, but literally oh, you- like, I felt, I felt like I was carrying a lot on me. And it's funny because even at the time, I think my, my ex told me, she was like, you know, you carry a lot, mm-hmm. you know? And I was, and like, I thought in my mind that like I had to carry it all because nobody else could, right. like nobody else was capable. You know what I mean? And like, I banked on that thought that I was the only person that was strong enough to deal with all this stuff. You know what I mean? And when you do that, you know, and you put all that onus on yourself, you know, it, not everybody, you can't carry everything for every man. Like you've got to set it down at some point. And, you know, people think that I try, I'm trying to get folks away from thinking they just need to just carry this stuff all the time, you know? That's a lot of fucking responsibility to say, I, I'm the only one that can hold that. So it's funny. We'll go back to that analogy of, of, you know, that first time talking to a therapist is, is taking that bunker coat off when you come out of a fire or taking your pack off. And we all know whoever's been through that situation knows how comfortable that feels once you do it. Yeah. But then I'll, I'll then I'll go, I'll take it one step further and I'll say that, that therapy is also like 
putting that shit back on to go back in and do overhaul because now it's time to do work. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, you know, I, I feel you on that too, you know, because it's good to talk about it, but then it's like, all right, now how are we going to fix it? Exactly. And that's where, you know, that's where the, yeah. that's where the work comes in. And so what, how did you work on it? Journaling, writing a letter to family and friends? Did you, did you have face to face with family and friends? How did, how did you change? Oh yeah, actually. So there was a, a big uh, kind of talk because basically after I lost my mind essentially and like almost like assaulted my friend, um, all my other friends stopped talking. They all like completely stopped talking to me because they were like, yo, we don't know this person. They literally said that like, we don't know who you are. Right. You know, which like, I didn't blame them for at the time. I understood it. I was like, I'm acting out of character and this is not the person they're friends with, you know? And eventually I have a, a really close friend, um, her name's Danny. And she essentially like, I... Like I reached out to her one day after like months of not talking, you know, after I finally felt like I had kind of got it together and like we send each other memes all the time. Right. That's like one of our like things. Um, so I sent her a meme essentially about like, how I was like ruining the friendship, but it was funny. And she like laughed and I was like, Hey man, like, do you want to like maybe meet up and we can like kind of talk? And she's like, of course. And so we like went out, we like hung out for a little bit, got some food. We talked a lot about it and like just my emotions about it, her emotions about it. And it, we like squashed it and she like understood where I was coming from and how I was feeling. And those are things that I had never told anybody, any of my friend group, right. You know, um, I never really talked, like I said, to my friends or my family, about how I was feeling up until that point. And so now that I was doing it and like, they could understand where I was coming from or why I was behaving that way. Not that it's an excuse, but like, that's where it was coming from. And this is what I'm doing to fix it. A lot of things changed positively, you know? And I think also another thing that kind of like, made me double down into this whole, I have to carry it all ideology. It was the fact that like, when things did happen, they're like, oh, like Alex got it. Yeah. Oh, he got it. He's good. He's got it. You know what I mean? And so like, when people are always saying that about you, you also double down back into it because you feel like you have got to be that person for everybody. You know what I mean? And like, as you probably get, like that gets, that gets tiring when you've got to be the guy for everything all the time, you know? And, um, and I told her that I was like, sometimes like, it's hard for me to be the guy. You know, that everyone's always looking to for the answer. I enjoy it, but like, it's, it's a lot of responsibility. And like, in order for me to, to continue to be that guy, I've got to like start to take care of myself, which I did, you know? So, yeah. So how is it different then now in this last year? What, what are you, what are you doing to make sure you don't slide back in? Or have you, have you found so, yourself sliding back in at times? Honestly, man, I really haven't found myself sliding back in because, um, I think I'm just way more self-aware now. So like if I'm having an issue or I feel a certain type of way, I start writing. Like I, I'll get back from like shift or something and I'll, and I'll write, like I'll write down how I feel and like something about that just like gets all that stuff out. And if I really feel like, you know, something's going on, then like I talk to my therapist about it. And so a combination of those two things, I think it really kept me back on track. And also like, I, I think I told you I went to Bonnaroo earlier this year and over the past year, I've spent a lot more time that I have in the past with like my friends and my family, like honestly, like a lot more time. That's kind of been, you know, like one of my goals was to spend time outside of work and to enjoy things outside of work, which honestly before that was just not a priority. Before that, it was pretty much like, it's a, I think this is a common thing in the fire service. It's like, oh, you know what? If I just like work this overtime, I'll be, I'll be good uh, next month or I'll work this, this set of trades and you know, we'll have time next month or next, next year I'll do this. But the problem with that mentality is like, that year, that month, the next time never comes. You know what I mean? Because then you just keep working, you keep spending time at work. And, you know, it just, 
it just spirals because you just, and you keep telling yourself like, oh, you know what? All I got to do is take this, this like set of classes for like, you know, the next month. And after that, I'll have some free time and then something else pops up and something else pops up and something else pops up. So honestly, one thing I've, I've started doing in the past year with work is telling people no. Just saying no. A, I'm like, I can't do that. It's a weird feeling sometimes for people that aren't used Dude, to saying it, no. It is. And like, that was one of the things my therapist said. He's like, Alex, you have a hard time saying no when it comes to work things, you know? And I did. And now it's like, if I feel like it's going to intercede with something outside of my work and it's something I've promised my, my friends and family that I'm going to do, I just say no, you know? And another thing I, I try not to do is I don't give an excuse as to why I can't do something. I say like, if they're like, hey, Alex, like, we need you to do this EMS training thing. Like, can you come on your four day and do it? I'm like, nope. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because you, you, like, you don't the, owe an excuse. You, you don't. And that's the thing, especially in the fire service, man. Like, there's that overarching sense of like, like I talked about earlier, martyrdom and guilt. So like, you're supposed to always be there. You know what I mean? And like, I say no, because I'm taking the time to myself so that I can continue to show up when I am like supposed to be on duty and do the best that I can for people. No, because if I don't like, I like you know, if I don't take care of myself, then I can't be good for people. No, you know what I mean. So that's that's the thing. Um, I definitely started saying no and like prioritizing my my friends and my family even more because honestly, man, like as you of course know, like like we're replaceable, right? Like I'm replaceable. Something could happen to me tomorrow, and they'll just get another person to like be me essentially, yeah. right? But like the people outside of that, people in your personal life, like you're not replaceable. You know, so that's kind of like where my head's at lately, you know what I mean? And I feel like I'm in a much better space now that I feel like that. And I prioritize, you know, experiences over work, you know? And I think that's that's definitely got me in a space where I feel even better when I am at work, you know what I mean? To do the things that I do have to do, you know? And actually, um, I've been reading a, a book that I was actually talking to some of the guys at my, my crew about yesterday. Um, it's called uh, The Emergency Mind. It's by Dan DeWorkis. You ever heard of it? No. It's a pretty good book. Um, but basically, it, it gives you a bunch of strategies as to like how to like kind of work through like emergency problems, stuff like that. But if I, if, if I can like throw a book recommendation out there for folks, I would definitely say to take a look at it. Um, got it right here. Um, Emergency Mind. Pretty good. So you beat me to one of my last questions then, so. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you might have to come up with another one since you've already mentioned that one. Uh-uh. All right, cool. So what, I, I, I got some other ones here. What is, what is this, Alex? How would you mm-hmm. treat going back? Say you get another stint at the academy. Yeah. How would you do that differently? I mean, other than the burnout and, and the working outrageous hours and overtime, how would you do the interaction with the, the recruits? How would that be different for you today? How would it be different today? Mm-hmm. For me, for one, I think I definitely would take, for me, I would take a softer approach. I would be a little bit more empathetic than I was. You know, I think some of them, especially my first class, they knew me to be like the drill sergeant, like right. hard ass at all times. Like some of the, sometimes like I'll be in the station with them and the stories they tell, I'm like, I didn't do that. And they're like, yes, you did. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I didn't. And they're like, and then like another one that comes in like, no, yeah, you did that. And I'm like, all right. You know, so I take some ownership in that, but I try to, um, I definitely would be more empathetic. And I think I would honestly, I know it's like very counterculture in the fire service, but I would have a softer approach and I would try to like, I guess kind of like 
focus more on the things that they're going to be experiencing and how they're going to affect them and normalize like, hey, man, like when you experience these things, these are the signs and symptoms to look out for. You know, if things aren't right, you may start doing these. And they're all different for different people. But like these are some of like the prime signs and symptoms that you might see, you know, if you may need to talk to somebody or if you feel some type of way. So I think that would be my thing is definitely being more empathetic and talking more about like, you know, how you're going to react to these types of situations. So, yeah, that's what I would say. So I, I know we've talked a bit, quite, well, we've talked quite a bit about how life is now. Um, have you repaired those relationships? Are you, are you back on track or, or is, what's the world like for you? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely have repaired those relationships and it's, it's great, man. Like I'm actually, um, I've been like, I think I told you, I told you earlier, like I went to Bonnaroo, those, those, those people that I went with was all those friends, you know, and like that kind of like reinforced our relationship even more, you know, cause we talk so much about just like life and experiences and things like that. We've gone on like a few camping trips and we kind of like reestablished that there, you know, and it's. It's really good because, like I said, I feel like a human being again, which I did not feel like for a very long time. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's even better now. Um, also, I went to a different station where, like, you know, it's less busy and you get more sleep. And it's crazy, man. Like, how much different you feel when you aren't sleep deprived all the time. Like, it's amazing. I think when I was in that, that, that stage, I was constantly sleep deprived, like, all the time. Even on my four days, I was still, like, constantly just sleep deprived all the time, you know, and I, I feel like I was walking around in a, in a haze. I feel like I was on autopilot all the time. And now it's like, I'm much more alert and awake and feel like I said, a human being again, combined with the fact that like, I've kind of reestablished all my relationships with my friends and family. So, you know, it's, it's definitely good. And, um, that's the way you need to feel to be able to continue to like do the job successfully is you have to have that balance, man. You know? And like, I tell folks all the time, I'm like, yeah, you can work all this extra overtime because sometimes you do need to, you know, you can work these trades and stuff, but like, dude, you have got to be able to like, you know, cut loose and enjoy the fruits of your labor a little bit, man. Because like, you know, like I said, that martyrdom and sacrifice in the fire service is important, but like it has to be balanced out, right? You know, work hard, play hard type thing, you know? But uh, um, yeah, it's, things are definitely on the up and up and I feel so much better. Like even in my day to day, like I wake up, I think positively about the world. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't shred like existing, which is unfortunately where I was at, you know, like I just, at that time, I really felt like I was like, there was just no way. I felt like the only way out, this was like death. You know what I mean? I felt like I was trapped in a situation. Now I don't feel like that. I feel like I'm literally, you know, like anything's possible. So that's, that's pretty much where I'm at. That's, I mean, that's the ideal, right? Yeah, it is. So before I get to the last two questions, anything you want to add, anything you feel like you need to, to, to cover before we move on to the last two questions? I mean, I think, I think I got most of the things I wanted to say. Perfect. All right. So uh, everyday carry, and I ask, I ask this of every guest that's on kind of always want to understand or not understand, but just get a grasp for what people are, are toting around in their day-to-day -day life. What's an everyday carry for you? Something you, you can't leave home without, or you feel naked. So is, it, is it weird? Mine's a food item. No, not at all. I take snacks everywhere I go. All right. Uh, so I always carry around, like I always have a bunch of protein bars with me because I am, I get hangry very quickly, especially like on calls. Like I literally like will pull out like a protein bar and just like, like where'd that even come from? So I definitely would say like some kind of like protein based food item. Um, 
that's probably it, honestly. That's the main thing. I keep them in my car, keep them in my backpack. I always have something like that just, just in case because I just can't be out of here hangry. So what's the go-to protein bar, just out of curiosity? Uh, for me, actually, I got them over here. Let's see. I like these right here. They're called like Fink. Oh, yeah. High right. protein bars. All right. Yeah, I like these because you can get them at like Giant. They um Some of those folks like tracks their calories and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, they have like a lot of protein. They don't have a lot of sugar in them. They got like 240 calories. And there's a good like snack like if you're like busy and you just throw one in your bag, something like that. But it's not like, you know, a bunch of junk in there. It's not a bunch of sugar. It's pretty much just like all protein. So, yeah, that's what I would say. All right. So you gave us one book. Then let's let's get to another one. So since you, you gave that one a free will, I'm going to ask you for another one. All right, cool. Actually, I do have one. Let me just make sure I get the author right. So I don't know if a lot of folks here, you know, read um, like sci-fi stuff, but another book that I, I really, really enjoy, and they actually made it into a movie recently, is a book called Annihilation. It's by mm. Jeff Vandermeer. You heard of it? No. Yeah, it's... um. Essentially, it's a book about, uh, the way I look at it is you kind of interpret it how you want to. And they actually made it into a movie, I think with like Natalie Portman a few years ago. But um, basically the concept is there's this alien event that happens in Texas, right? They have this artifact that crashes into the ground from space and it starts to kind of terraform the southern part of Texas, right? It starts to change the biology. It starts to change the animals there and it keeps expanding, right? Um, so essentially they start sending teams of people in to kind of assess the situation and figure out how to stop this before kind of overtakes the entire area. And each team they send in, something happens to them. They come out, they all die of cancer. Like a week later, they mm -hmm. come out, they all kill themselves, something like that. So, and they keep sending in different types of people to go. Like at one point they send in like a bunch of like, you know, like operators, right? They send a bunch of guys in, they come out, something happens, you know? So the story takes off. They send, um, all women scientists in, right? To see if like, that will be different. And basically it follows that group of like women scientists just like go and assess the situation. But essentially like one of the main things is, is like the way I take, I take away from it is like nothing will ever be the same. Things are always changing, you know, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't want to give away too much of the story, but that's, that's pretty much like what I take away from it. And it kind of helps me focus on like my life and the fact that like, you know, we do have like good times in our life. We have bad times, but like nothing stays the same, you know? So I think that that's, I that fits in really well because I mean, you, you know, as well as I do, once you've experienced something, it, it, one of the questions you ask yourself is why can't I just be myself again? Well, you are yourself. Yeah. You can't go to, you can't go back to what, who you were. You're just, you have to learn exactly. to be who you are now. And I think actually I saw on your page, somebody had like a Maya Angelou quote. Yeah, that was me. It was similar. Oh, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That was me. That was a. Dude, I saw that. That was a great quote. I can't remember what exactly what the quote was, but that was a great quote. It was like, do you remember what exactly? I, what I will was? have to look it up again because I, I I write this stuff every week, and so sometimes it, it starts to run together. But yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was no, yeah, it, it'll come to me, and I can I can put it back out there later. Um, trying to remember who who it was, which episode it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember what it was, but I saw that. I think, and that was a that was a great a great quote. And kind of related to this, but yeah. Trying to see if it's this one. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> I I try to find a quote, something that, that's going to resonate with, with whatever the theme is. I try to do it every week. And if it's not possible, I mean, or if it is possible, uh, at least I try and get it done. 
Yeah, here I it is. It. It's, in, it's in episode 69 with uh, yeah. Kathy Crosby. I can be changed by what happens to me, but I refuse to be reduced by it. Exactly. I love I love that quote, man, because like, especially doing this job, and I think this is something I'd also tell recruits, right? Like, you will be changed by these things, right? And that's inevitable. Like, you can't see the types of things that we see and do the things that we do and not be changed by it. I mean, that's honestly, sometimes that change is a good thing because it makes us better at what we do. Right. But the key factor is like, you can't, it won't, you can't let it a define you and you can't let it destroy you. You know what I mean? You have to take the good from it and make yourself better, you know? And that's, what's kind of hard to do sometimes, but yeah, man, that, that quote is great. And like, I like to keep quotes, like in my, in my bedroom, I have like a big, a big mirror and I, and I write quotes on it. And that's actually one of the quotes that I've been meaning to put up there is that one. So, yeah. Well, I'm happy it resonated. That 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 uh, makes it makes it worth it. Yeah, man. Hey, I appreciate the conversation. This is uh this has been a good one. Um, I you know I kicked myself this morning when I thought about it. I was like, I we're we're basically an hour and a half away from each other. We sh- we should have found the time to meet up and do it in person. So perhaps sometime when we get a chance, we can sit down, and have a meal together, and 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 actually meet and, and hang out for a minute. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I also follow. Um, or I think you run. Do you run that other page, that objectionable page? I, I do. Yeah, yeah, I follow that one. And honestly, that's kind of how I found this. I found that page, and I was like, "This guy is talking about some stuff that I agree with." <laughs> and then I found this. I found this from that. Yeah, that's me. They're both me. So, well, um, nice. yeah. So, listen. Let me know what what the deal is. We'll figure out how we how we can hang out sometime. Maybe go catch a show somewhere. Yeah, I'd be down for that. All right, cool, man. Go enjoy the rest of your day. All right, man. I appreciate it, my friend. Take care. Peace. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.